Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. We've got a special episode lined up for you today as I'm joined by three of my classmates and three of the best founders at Wharton, Gabby Campoverde, John Garner, and Nate Sofio. Gabby is the founder of Myron, a company on a mission to expand access to finance and capital to small business owners across the U.S. John is the founder of Card Curator, a credit card rewards optimization app. And Nate is the founder of Portable, a company that provides universal financial identity for all. All three are Wharton FinTech board members, and I'm happy to call all three of them my friends. We discuss each of their companies, how the MBA program has helped their companies develop, and what they will miss most about their time as an MBA. On a personal note, this will be my last episode with Wharton FinTech. Upon graduating, I'll be joining the MX Ventures team investing in early stage FinTech companies. It has been the honor of my MBA career to bring episodes to you all. If you would like to get in touch, please do not hesitate to reach out on Twitter or LinkedIn. And for one last time, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, friends. Uh, happy to have you all here today. Super excited for an in-person episode uh, with some of my favorite classmates and founders and friends uh, at Wharton. And John, you just kind of dropped a major bomb there. Uh, congratulations on your engagement. Uh, thank you very much. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very exciting. Um, she uh, she actually proposed. So. Hey, there you go. Love <laughs> it was that. truly a surprise. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a special episode today. We've got three of the best founders at Wharton MBA uh, talking to us. I'm going to do my best to kind of try to go in order. So we'll go with Gabby first, then John, then Nate. Um, but team, feel free to, to speak up uh, and ask other questions if I'm missing anything big. Um, but let's just jump right into it. So uh, Gabby, you're on the clock first. Listeners may recognize Gabby's voice from previous episodes, uh, but you may not know that she has a startup of her own, which is Myron. Uh, Gabby, can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So with Myron, we're on a mission to expand access to financing capital to small business owners across the U.S. So what we're doing is that we're empowering financial institutions with our data services products and our software to enable them to optimize their loan intake and management processes. Um, started this startup at Wharton, um, was really interested in financial inclusion and seeing how I can give back to communities like the ones that I grew up with in Queens. I just caught the startup bug here, was genuinely interested in the problem. And now we're here a day later working on an MVP. Very cool. And you and I have talked about this a bunch, uh, but you mentioned that this problem kind of hits home for you. Can you just bring that to light a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Queens, New York, a proud New Yorker. I think everyone (laughs) at Wharton knows that I love New York City. Um, But I grew up in Astoria before it became the Brooklyn of Queens, and I know John keeps laughing, <laughs> but it's it's a thing. I just really love New York. And I grew up fairly working class. We had food stamps growing up. I went to public school my entire life. And growing up, I knew that financial services products just didn't work for my neighbors and for my family. I started a career in marketing, was successful there, went on to American Express, learned a bit about product management, wanted to know more about the unsexy portions of product, move over to Goldman, where I was doing technical program management. I realized that as much as I loved building products for traders and as challenging as I thought it would be, John is also laughing because he was a former trader. (laughs) It's a thankless job to say say the least. I mean, on the back end stuff, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening, right? But I always thought hey, there's this entire world of industry, like this industry that's completely being disrupted, but there's not that many founders with similar backgrounds like mine that are thinking about the communities that we came from that are building specific products for them. So 
went to um, Wharton, came here, was really interested in joining a startup. Um, never really had the intention of starting one, but was really interested in the problem. And I, I guess the whole statistic that we've talked about beforehand is I was reading an article by JP Morgan and the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative. It turns out that when it comes to Latino entrepreneurship, they're 60% less likely to be approved for a loan than their white counterparts with all performance set as equal. And I remember sitting in my room in the winter of Philadelphia saying like, okay, it seems like there's a story behind this. And literally the next day, packed my backpack, went to South Philly, went door to door, talking to different small business owners, asking them about their banking, how you know they funded their business, how they started their business, and realized that there was a huge issue with getting access to financing capital um, and started there. Amazing. Uh, you may not remember this, but I have a very vivid memory of you and I sitting at Bonner's, which is the classic... <laughs> Like uh, <laughs> Warden MBA bar. I do remember. I actually and, do uh, remember which company. Yeah, about. exactly. So, so you had just told me that you were changing the business model for the company a little bit, and were going towards a B two B route. And then maybe thirty seconds later, somebody came up and asked you what your company does, and you gave this beautiful thirty second pitch of the new business model. Um, but I want to ask. I don't think I asked at the time what prompted that change. Yeah. Um, so originally I was focused on small business loan origination while at Wharton, I was able to get conversations with different partner banks and investors and folks who would initially be able to fund our idea and not in the way of investing in our company, but more so actually giving us the capital to distribute. What's interesting about the space right now, and I hope in a few years it changes and I know with Nate's ideas like what Nate is currently building and the products that he's building. I'm really bullish on like how things will change in this space, but it's really expensive to be able to get capital when, you know, folks don't necessarily have a social security number in the U S if they have a visa, if they have an immigrant status or have a credit thin profile. So when I pitched this idea to partner banks, the cost of capital would have been quite high. And for us to you know, be able to keep the startup alive, we had to provide rates that would not be favorable. And I wouldn't honestly feel good about at the end of the day going home and saying, like, I did a great job, right? So in management, I think it's 612 or whatever, we have this strategy of they call it the judo strategy where you kind of you grip onto your partners. So like three, three months later, I'm like, that's what we did. So we realized that there's a lot of nonprofit lenders out there and community banks that are really interested in working with underserved communities and empowering local economies. So we pivoted from the loan originations business model to a B2B software model. So now we're working with these banks to give them the right tools to have a larger impact on their community and work less with tasks that could be automated and more on tasks that really drive value and help them get into contact with their community. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's just expand on that last point a little bit more. So what what stage is Myronet right now? And um, maybe where do you hope to go? Any major milestones you have in the next 12 months? Yeah, sure. Um, so by the end of the summer, we're um, hoping to go live with three lenders. Right now, we've built a loan application platform 
So we're taking lenders who typically don't have their applications online, literally creating web pages for them and giving them a CRM. So that way they can keep track of who is coming to their CDFI or their credit union, what applications are in progress and allow them to keep track of how is it that these loans are being funded. All of these are like reporting features that typically would have taken five to seven programs to do. So we're building one single platform for them. And we're currently working with a partnership with an entrepreneurship community to also help um, this community be able to create like a common application to send to different lenders. So we're still in our early stages. By the end of the summer, we hope to be, like I said, with two to three folks on board um, and then looking to fundraise and you know, expand and scale our mission. Mm-hmm. And I, I mentioned we're all second year MBA students, but Gabby, you've got a little bit more classwork ahead than the rest of us, right? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes I have uh, my engineering degree still left. So on the weekends, I'll be taking a course each semester which, you know, has been fun. It's been a grind, but uh, looking forward to also hitting the finish line with that one. I I think as someone who is a product manager with an art history and linguistics degree and not a computer science degree, there was a scarlet letter that I wore for (laughs) quite a while (laughs) working in tech. So looking forward to finally calling myself an engineer. Yeah. Well, uh, from what I've seen from the outside looking in, you're doing a great job with with both degrees. Um, Okay. Let's move on then to John and Card Curator. And uh, yes. John, I a few people might know about this Japan trip that kind of was the genesis for Card Curator. Yeah. Um, but I would love to, if you could, uh, you know, say one more time for the audience. Yeah, happy to share. So uh, back in 2017, um, I planned this trip to uh, Korea and Japan with a couple of friends of mine. And the idea wasn't to like prove out the Card Curator um, concept. It was just, I wanted to go on a trip. Card Curator wasn't an idea yet. Um, and I never gone on a group trip where it was fully funded on points and miles. And so I was just like, Hey, let's <laughs> see if this works out. Um, and, uh, we determined where we wanted to go, how we wanted to get there. And so that allowed me to back out which points and miles we needed to get. And then ultimately which credit cards we needed to apply for. So, um, there's four of us. We each had to get about five credit cards. It took us about six months to hit the minimum spend which was about $20,000 per person. This was when we were doing otherwise. I didn't go out and buy a new car or anything like that. Um, and at the end of it, we were able to book round trip, first class airfare on Crane Air from New York to Seoul, Seoul to Tokyo, Osaka back to Seoul, Seoul to New York. And then we stayed in five-star hotels for 16 nights. Total cash value per person was about $26,000. Um, so that's a 130% return on every dollar spent per person. Which we think about is just crazy, right? Uh, if I could tell you every dollar you spend, you get a dollar back. We would have um, loved to defer that trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it truly is crazy. And when I got back from that trip, it's actually my father, who's now my co-founder, he was the one that said, hold up, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> that's nuts. If we can extract that value for other people, then we have business here. Because as you guys all know, there are companies that come out Y Combinator and they don't have a value proposition. And we're starting with one, uh, clear as day. And so that's uh, kind of how Car Curator, Car Curator got started. I dove on in and I started writing the core algorithm that uh, that drives everything uh, from telling you which car to use for given purchase to telling you how to achieve your wildest dreams mm-hmm. for travel. I've never told you this for fear of ridicule, but when I left consulting, I cashed out all my points to Macy's gift cards, <laughs> oh, and I used it to buy a suit. Oh, <laughs> that breaks my heart. Yeah. 
<laughs> that hurts so much to hear. I don't know why I brought it up now. I almost made it two full years without that story. Yeah. Um, so when you told me that Japan story, I was like, wow, I really should have waited to catch up. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk. You've mentioned to me a few times about your, uh, your upcoming products and the products you've already launched. Uh, can you just describe to the listeners uh, what, what's out there right now? Yeah. So um, we, uh, we've just released um, the new uh, free version of our app, um, completely uh, revamped it. We, uh, we took it back to the bare bones. So it's a real, real simple. It's simply a card recommendation tool for a point of purchase using geolocation. And by what I mean is that the app tells you which cards you use in your wallet when you're making a purchase. Um, that's all it does. It's uh, real simple. There's no login required. There's no onboarding. There's no username, no password. You simply click on in. You, your phone's identified from your unique, unique phone ID. And uh, we are able to tell you uh, how to track value of your wallet right then and there. We will also tell you what the best theoretical card is for a given purchase, if you're interested in, in learning about that. But um, the idea for that actually was to be able to embed that in its own API and white label and full SDK so that we can then actually license that out to other uh, fintechs. Uh, because we realize that this is actually a service that a lot of other fintechs could benefit from and could supply to their customers. Um, so that's the, the new free version. Then um, we have the classic premium, uh, which has been out there for a while now. Uh, what's changed is that uh, everything that I just listed um, that's not in free is now premium. So anything that's goal-based. You want to go on that luxury trip to Japan that I went on? You just put in that goal, and we'll tell you exactly how to achieve it by tracking your sign-up bonuses, telling you when to apply for your new cards, when to downgrade or cancel your current cards, and uh, how to use existing points and models you already have. So that, that's the current product suite that we have right now live. We're also working on a few um, other exciting things that will be coming out in the near future. Um, and I'll, I'll tease it by saying it will make traveling um, on points and miles a lot more painless by uh, looking up live pricing for you. Uh, and that's going to be incredibly exciting. And that's also another tool that will be in its own API and white label package that we can use to partner with um, other businesses. Very cool. It's no secret that MBA students like to travel a lot, especially during the MBA program. And I imagine that that gave you some pretty interesting insights into potential future users of the product and also able to tinker the product with um, you know, customers that you had the opportunity to, to chat with in person. Uh, is that fair? Or did you kind of have any interesting learnings from working with MBA students? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, this probably comes as no surprise to any of you guys, but um, MBA students uh, really don't care that much about saving money on travel. They, they like to bitch and moan about how expensive things are. But John, it's you, a family-friendly show. <laughs> if, if you look at their actions, they... Uh, Go through their Instagram. Yeah. Really. If you look at their actions, they're not willing to put in the, the time that is required to, to save money. Because it, it, it requires a lot of time and effort. It's a giant pain, right? Um, so I, I don't blame them. But uh, they're spending thousands of dollars a year, on, or just on tri- single trips even, uh, on a uh, monthly basis almost. So it, it's not very common. That being said, we have onboarded um, hundreds of Wharton students who have figured out that with services like ours, it's actually not that hard to, to save thousands of dollars on every trip, particularly when they're sitting on mountains of points, minus yourself, obviously. <laughs> uh, and they can be using that to travel around for free. And we've also learned a lot from it. The, the idea that I hinted at for making that travel even easier it came from other warrants. They're like, why aren't you working on something like this? And I told them, as always, 
on our roadmap, but we we moved on up. And it also was helped by the fact that a um, very prominent fintech also approached us um, through a Wharton connection to uh, to build this service for them because it would benefit their customers and their loyalty program. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's been invaluable, really, uh, to get this hands-on feedback immediately. Yeah. And I also noticed you got some free, or I don't know if it was free, but you got some some pretty cool advertising during Wharton Follies. I thought that was well-placed, uh, right, when we were showing pictures of everyone's travel. Uh, we had card curator, curator up there, so nice job with that. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it wasn't exactly free, but it was, uh, it was family-friendly pricing. So. There you go. All right. Uh, last, we've got uh, Nate, who's also the president of Wharton Fintech. Uh, talking about portable. Um, so Nate, I know when you started the MBA program, uh, you you had the idea behind portable, but you weren't quite all in at that time. Uh, what convinced you that this was going to be kind of what's, at least when I talk to you, that's the most important thing in your life for the past couple of years? Yeah, it's a great question. And so for folks listening out on Spotify and wherever else people listen to podcasts these days, um, I'll admit I'm a Spotify user. Um, I'm a little in the dark about everything else. Portable's value prop is pretty simple. You know, we fundamentally believe that you should be able to own a verified version of your financial identity and take it with you anywhere you need to, whether we're talking about a Cap One or a Wells Fargo or a Chime or a Pedal on one hand or a Uniswap or a BlockFi on the other. So really, we need to be able to cross that Web 2 and Web 3 divide and allow people to do that seamlessly. And if we can do that, then we kind of set the stage for allowing the financial system to be more transparent, fairer, and equitable because it allows for more standardization around how a lot of contextual identity information is used when it's not really being used all that well right now to the detriment of, you know, thousands of millions of people who need, you know, access to even basic stuff. So, you know, it's it's a lofty thing and it's a complicated space um, identity. And I think if anything, in the past two years, because of COVID and the rush towards digitization, the the growth in identity focused, privacy focused, you know, and KYC focused startups has been prodigious. It's a lot to keep up with. But you know, at the time, you know, when I decided to come back to school, it was still crystallizing for me. And I think it's a, it's a funny mixture of things that made me realize um, why I needed to commit to this and why you know I needed to commit to it at that moment. On the, the nerdier side of things, there's, there's a combination of regulations that were all happening in uh, 2020 and 2021. Um, and I'll be the first to admit the entire table is laughing um, because, I, you know, if there's, if there's a reg, if anyone has a question about a reg in the Wharton FinTech community, they will probably come to me first. Um, you know, whether we're talking about Dodd-Frank 1033, you know, more recently, you know, FATF's um, crypto travel rule. But I guess more, more wonkishly, the thing that got me inspired by this was actually PSD2 or the Payment Services Directive number two in Europe, which defined this really funky thing called an account information service provider, which started hinting at this unbundling of identity and identity information controlling from the actual account itself. Now, you know, of course, PSD2 has a lot of kinks to work out, and there's a bunch of things in the European Union around, you know, the European self-sovereign identity framework that are still kind of being thrashed about and the corners of which are being sanded down. But I realized, oh, wait, you know, the the U.S. financial system is deeply, deeply fragmented. And it is fundamentally nuts that you could be the best customer on earth and you still have to do long form onboarding every single time. 
you know, you supply some information, you may take a selfie, you may provide a picture of something like a passport or a driver's license, and you end up with this huge amount of surface area. You know, the middle, you know, two thirds of uh, folks in the U.S. have something between five and 20 financial accounts and apps and are an app on their phone or folder on their phone, not just an app. So there's a lot of fragmentation. And so I realized that, okay, between, you know, being able to read some tea leaves out of the regs in other parts of the world, the fragmentation that exists in the U.S., the rise of fraud across all types in a post-COVID environment, and this increasingly messy relationship between identity data disclosure and, you know, fundamental financial transparency and access, you know, it's time to figure out how to essentially separate the idea of an identity from, from access. And so, you know, it was, it was probably late 2020. So after mm-hmm. we had all matriculated that I realized that, okay, this stuff is just, the space is too, too interesting and the opportunity is too big to not take action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it was probably around over the holidays and into 2021 where I was like, okay, not going to recruit, not going to build a safety net. I'm just going to build product and start building a team. And here we are. Nice. Um, I remember talking to a VC about you uh, about a year ago, and I said, uh, well, he knows everything about reg tech. I don't know why that's what he chose to know everything about, but he knows everything about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and to your point on the financial applications, uh, I was talking with Amias uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he predicted that the number of applications on people's phones, financial applications on their phones, will go up over time, over the next five years, rather than down. So interesting use case for you as well. Uh, one thing um, I forget from time to time, but it's probably the most tangible part of why I got this started was actually my own frustration <laughs> when I moved from the Brooklyn of Brooklyn to <laughs> Philadelphia. And I realized that I had to log into as many places I could remember to change my address. And then I had to re- remember and kind of excavate whether or not I was missing anything. And I was just like, this, this again is nuts. You know, I, I might have these accounts, but I also need to update everything. I wish I could update it once and publish it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, institutions, large or small, could just kind of essentially make a GitHub request and pull on my changes. Mm-hmm. And that would be that would be great. That would be nice and smooth and easy. Yeah. Rather than me having to take care of that all on my own. Yeah. To this day, I still might be missing some information. And I know the credit credit uh, bureaus still think I live in Brooklyn, <laughs> but that's a little bit outside of my control. Yeah. So what stage is, is Portable at right now? And uh, what are some of the major milestones you're hoping to hit coming up? Yeah, so it's a great time to ask uh, ask that question. You know, we're a team of five right now. Uh, we had the joy and the privilege of taking part in Pairs Accelerator last summer. And so that put us in a great position to start building out the team and fleshing out kind of our core services. And so literally within the next two to three weeks, we'll be launching our developer portal, our APIs and SDKs. So we're, we'll be, you know, open for business as far as we're concerned. You know, we have this kind of inglorious you know, distinction of doing, of building, fundraising, and hiring all at the same time, mm-hmm. um, which I'm so happy to talk about. It's a little masochistic, but it's it's the right time to be doing all three. So, you know, priority one, get the APIs and SDKs out there. Two, uh, close our pre-seed round. Um, we're really excited about what's what's shaping up there. And hopefully by the time this podcast is out mm-hmm. in the world, we'll have that closed and, you know, we'll be able to point people at a press release. Um, and at that point, you know, for us, the next things really entail, you know, pushing head on a few budding partnerships and direct early adopters um, across both Web 2 and Web 3. 
Mm-hmm. So I've seen you balance over the past couple of years, not just fundraising and building and hiring, but also being a full-time student, which you, you didn't mention on that, on that list of activities. Do you have any advice for prospective founders who are also considering their MBA? Because it's been a pretty challenging juggle. Yeah, it's, it's been a wild ride, to put it mildly. I would, there's not one single piece of advice, you know, which, which may be disappointing to some. Sorry, I'm already my soundbite. Because it's entirely stage dependent and uh, industry dependent. So even the distinction between a B2B fintech founder and a B2C fintech founder is vastly different. You know, I don't think Wharton would like mm-hmm. me saying this very much, but there's definitely plenty of market opportunities out there that you don't need to come back for an MBA for mm-hmm. to succeed um, you know, launching an app, launching a service, stuff like that. If you've already got the idea and you've got momentum or you want some place to really incubate it in a reduced risk capacity, even though there is kind of a certain opportunity cost to you know, going to school, you know, two years of not really taking any income, things like that. And those kinds of things are justifiable relative to where you think you can take the business in those two years. Go ahead and do it. But, you know, I think to parrot a phrase that comes out of the the Web3 universe, do your own research. There's not one right answer. Um, You know, B school is not for everyone. And you need to be ready to say no to a whole lot of stuff if you're a a founder in B school. Mm -hmm. I Gabby and John, anything to add to that uh, last question? Yeah, uh, I, I like to say that if there was a, a phrase, it's possible. Like it, anyone can do it. It is possible. As Nate said, it's certainly not easy. You have to give up a lot of stuff. Um, you can't be partying seven seven nights a week and uh, and still run a start a successful startup. Um, that's simply not possible. But uh, I, I totally agree. Uh, you don't need to go back to war necessarily uh, if it helps you and you need the connections and the network and uh what have you then yeah it's great for that and warren's unparalleled for their alumni network and the the peers and friends and connections that you'll make here but uh if you already have an idea and traction running uh there is a real opportunity cost to uh to dedicating two years in mba and paying hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah and it is it's interesting to now be graduating reflecting back on our two years and how quickly they've gone by and it's been I think we're all of us very busy. Like when we see each other, if we do see each other, it's in passing. And it's like, how's it going? Really good. Okay, let's catch up some time, some coffee. When can we do it? Maybe in two months. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the one thing that has stood out to me was one, the very, very low risk. Does risk actually exist in an MBA program? Especially with like a school like Warren, you know, I... We all had really great careers and an MBA was just another plus one. We've all worked really hard for that as well. And that's why we came here. But what's interesting to me is the amount of people that have been there for me throughout these past two years. And like not only the student community and like fellow founders, but also the alumni that I've talked to. Like if Penn has offered so many like entrepreneurs and residents or experts and residents or like legal advice and I think just having that, those connections facilitated have made it pretty useful for me. And coming from a space where I didn't have an idea already, had a background in fintech and financial service in general, but 
meeting other folks who are going to help me along the way, like the Wharton and Penn Network in general has been pretty useful. Uh, speaking of somebody who had their idea before coming to Wharton, that was even super useful for me as well. Like I, I found it invaluable, really. Let's stay on the topic a little bit. And I want to ask each of you, since we're all part of the Wharton FinTech Club and all part of the board of the Wharton FinTech Club, uh, what your favorite thing has been about the club. And Nate, I'll start with you. You know, I've been in a very, it's been an interesting two years. It's hard to pick one highlight, actually. I had to stop myself from answering twice now. I would say we, the conference we held last year, you know, everyone was still in Zoom school, working from home on Zoom, Zoom this, Zoom, Zoom that, Zoom everything else. And the amount of effort the club members put into putting that conference together last year, the first of its kind, mm-hmm. because the original conference was supposed to be 2020. And then we pulled off this huge virtual thing last year. The How the club came together to get that up and off the ground with the polish and professionalism of a team that you would swear had been doing it for 10 years uh, was nothing but extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, that for me stands out not only because it was kind of this, you know, flagship event for us in the first of its kind, but because we we did it at a magnitude that I don't think any of us really could have predicted going in. And then we pulled it off with, again, the the, the seamlessness of, you know, kind of a professional event, you know, team, mm-hmm. essentially. So that was remarkable to see everyone pitch in to do the creative work, do the marketing work, do the financial and operations work, recruit 150 panelists from the U.S. and the other four corners of the globe across tons of different content areas was truly remarkable. And I think, you know, for me, it was not, you know, it's not my memory. It's, it's the, the notion that some, you know, there's no fewer than 50 people involved in getting that stuff together. And to now know that we're on the, the cusp of being able to do it again and having another mm-hmm. conference this April is is remarkable. And I think the last thing I'll say on that is, you know, now as co-president of Wharton FinTech to see, you know, the class of 2023 and having had a chance to meet and greet a number of people who are um, prospective 2024s, Mm -hmm. it just keeps getting better. (laughs) You know, I am forever shocked or maybe not shocked, forever astonished by the caliber of, um, people coming into Wharton FinTech or who want to get involved, you know, everything from their background experiences to the amount of uh, kind of blind leaps I want to take into, you know, recruiting into FinTech, you know, learning new content areas, things like that. So to kind of see that from my position and understand that, you know, we'll all graduate and we'll be out of here. Mm -hmm. But knowing that the club is in very, very good hands really uh, sits with me. Yeah. Uh, John, same question. Favorite thing about Wharton FinTech? Yeah, um, well, Nate kind of covered all the bases there, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll echo what he said about the, the people. Uh, that, that for me is really the, the special part, just uh, how interested, knowledgeable, driven, and excited everyone is about FinTech to have that community and that support system uh, to, you know, just have friendly coffee chats or like lively debates uh nate and i have worked on a variety of outside projects and we definitely have some overlap definitely want to talk about the the, the moving your uh, addresses on uh, <laughs> on bank accounts because that <laughs> yeah no idea how many bank accounts i had to move over from uh, from new york to philly um and the ability to have that and have that community there that for me is what's the most special and uh and i'm definitely gonna miss it mm-hmm. gabby yeah i mean 
Honestly, I'll say that Warren Fintech was the highlight of my Warren experience. <laughs> I know it's, it's kind of weird, but it, it has been. And I, I think with us, like clearly you guys mentioned it, like the Fintech junkies that we have on the board and in the club. But the podcast team, clearly you guys will always have a place in my heart. But it, it was just such a cool opportunity. And I think, like I said it beforehand, I was always really interested in financial inclusion and how can we get more, build a platform for fintechs that are building for an underserved market. So I think having that opportunity there to bring on speakers that didn't necessarily give us the, we have hundreds of inbounds, but really searching for those folks and looking at the latest startups and figuring out who's out there that's building something interesting and hearing their story and getting to know how they're going to build an impact on the U.S., the world, and change this industry. I thought that was a really unique opportunity that would not have existed at an HBS or at a GSV, you know, so. Less um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, that was definitely my highlight. Nice. Next question for all of you is, how has the school helped you with your startup? And John, we'll start with you. Um, so we, we touched on it uh, briefly, but the, I think the Venture Lab here, and that's not just Warren, that's across Penn as a whole, has been incredibly helpful. Their uh, VIP X program, their in-house accelerator, um, I wouldn't say it's quite at the caliber of Paris, for example, but uh, considering it's not only free and that they don't take equity, they actually pay you uh, when you graduate, uh, is, uh, is very exciting. And uh, they bring in phenomenal alumni, and they have a great crash course or semester. That's been just invaluable. And then the resources that they have beyond that from the experts or residents to the venture fellows, where you have other fellow students from across Penn as a whole who want to learn more about startups, who dedicate 10 hours a week of their free time, um, unpaid, to help you out with your startup, but also is your responsibility to teach them and drive a passion in them as well. That for me has been truly special. And um, I don't know of too many other schools that, that really offer that. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that there's tons of scholarships and grants that are out there available for entrepreneurs across, not just Warren, but Penn as a whole, um, has been very helpful. Mm-hmm. Gabby, same question. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And like, as I mentioned before, it's like the network has been super effective and it's not just about the alumni themselves, but also the introductions that they're willing to make. Um, but I think one thing that has definitely stood out to me was the amount of feedback that I've gotten on like my startup, on my pitch, on my pitch deck. You know, literally, you have also provided such great feedback. And I think that really changes. I like it when people challenge you. And I think the Warren community as a whole, like we're, we're very willing to have frank conversations and like, it's always like a team-based discussion. That's what, that's why we're here. Right. And that has really enabled me to think about what are different aspects of the industry that we can disrupt. And also like, how is it, what are other potential product lines that, you know, we as Myron can build out. So I, I think the feedback the classes that actually had professors with industry experience were also really awesome because mm-hmm. they were also, again, just like willing to give you the time and help you with like what, what are next steps for, for your startup. Mm-hmm. Nate? Yeah. I'm here like kind of in the corner scribbling away as like, <laughs> Kathy and John are answering. Um, you know, there's, there's so many things, you know, the venture fellows obviously is one uh, portable has four venture fellows right now who are just, 
absolutely knocking it out of the park with their areas of respective research. Some on regs, which I will admit, and some not on <laughs> regs, um, and some more doing some more technical research. You know, one thing I'll say in particular is that you know, Portable is currently in the Wharton Cipher Accelerator right now, which is the blockchain accelerator. So there's 10 companies in this, this first cohort, the Genesis cohort, from you know quite literally across the world. I think we have a handful in the U.S., there's two pen teams, and there's a couple in, in uh, further afield. And you know that's been a very interesting sort of mashup of what pen can bring to the table. And then the kinds of teams and resources pen can put you in front of. So whether it's um, you know folks who've worked at like commerce or treasury on one hand, or you know experts who've built you know pretty sophisticated you know decentralized identity tools on on the other, you know the Cipher Accelerator and I think Pen writ large has this really magical property of being able to put you in front of exactly the right person or resource at exactly the right time and exactly the right place that I don't think you could get anywhere else. And I think the the final kind of component of that that magic is exactly what Gabby said, which is the ability to just reach out into the very many communities here, here and kind of outsource questions, outsource feedback, mm-hmm. outsource, I guess, insource in a way, new opportunities to be challenged, you know, find blind spots, things like that. So between kind of the magic of just what Penn can reach and support you with as an entrepreneur, plus the community here, you know, any of us can build multiple, multiple companies and still not tap in all the resources mm-hmm. that, that Penn has, let alone do it in two years here. <laughs> Wholeheartedly <laughs> agree. <laughs> yes, most definitely. All right, friends, last question. Feel free to get a little uh, sentimental on this one. Uh, by the time this episode airs, we, we either have graduated or are close to graduating. Uh, so what are you going to miss most about the MBA program? Uh, sorry, Gabby, I'll start with you. Oh, hard. I, I already said Warren Fintech was definitely a highlight. Um, I'm going to miss the podcast uh, host seat, but I think I'm going to miss having Philadelphia as the mm. Warren MBA bubble. Now, when everyone moves here, we typically like live in Rinhouse Square, and there are a certain number of like high rises that everyone will choose to live in. And I miss bumping into people and having that community like feel. And mm-hmm. I know most of our classes going to end up in New York, but I don't think we're going to have the same. Um, you know, I won't see you during when you're getting your Sunday coffee or um, whatnot, but I- I'm definitely just going to be miss being close to a lot of wonderful people and friends that I've made throughout the past two years. Yeah. Nate? Jeez. I mean, I mean, First of all, I'll second everything that, that Gabby said. Um, I will provide the caveat that I'm one of the, the outliers who's decided to stay in Philly mm-hmm. after graduation. I have a lot of interesting feelings about that. I'll be looking at the Wharton MBA community from the outside now. <laughs> I mean, on the other side of the window, my face pressed against the glass, <laughs> you know, um, trying to wish everyone well. You know, I think one thing that I think about a lot is, you know, how can I continue to be a resource, you know, even though I'm the like, old guy on the outside now, or at least almost about to be, you know, I'm grateful I'll be staying in Philly though. Philly's really grown on me a lot. You know, I spent 10 years in New York before, before my MBA then moved here. I was like, how big of a change is this going to be? And then, you know, as much as I love New York, like Philly feels like home. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm glad I'll be staying here at least for the next couple of years. Hopefully I don't fly too far from the nest, at least, (laughs) you know, to, to future classes of Wharton MBAs here. 
you might see me around at least through uh, 2025. <laughs> Feel free to drop me a line. I'm happy to help any way I can. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, John, bring us home. Yeah. Um, I obviously like to echo everything that Nate and Gabby have said. Uh, I, I think the the ability to have such a close-knit community for a two-year period in the same time, the same place, and that's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It, it doesn't happen uh, again, even if you were to try to physically force a planet. It, it, people get old. They move on. Like They, they move to other places, to other jobs. It, like This isn't going to happen again for us. So um, the ability to experience this for a full two years with all the bumps of the road, you know, COVID and Zoom and like <laughs> we all went through it. It's been truly remarkable. And to, you know, celebrate, learn, grow together, travel together. It's, it's just been so much fun. And the ability to learn from my peers and, and, and classmates and, uh, you know, grow my network and grow Car Curator. Because before I joined, like, it, w- it was already built, but it's just taken on such a new life uh, mm-hmm. since coming here. So um, that, that's what I'm going to miss. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. I don't forget, but I forget the fact that we went through like literally hell and back. Like yeah. we went through a pandemic. Like yeah. we met each other over Zoom before we even got on campus. We didn't know whether or not a class was going to be in person. So I feel like our class in particular is just so close knit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be sad. Shared experience. <laughs> yeah. well, team, I think that's that's a pretty good place to wrap it up. Um, but thank you all uh, for the time today. I'm glad we could get to this. I was looking forward to this episode in particular uh, since the idea came into my mind. And um, I cannot wait to see how all of your stories and your respective companies play out. I'm very excited for the three of you. Thanks thank so you for having us. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Wharton FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.